conclude with verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 19. What I want to speak to you today about is living as an exile. Or how to live as an exile. We know that's who Peter is writing to. A dispersed group of exiles. Outcasts from the world. Followers of Christ. And now he's going to move in in these verses. Verses 13 through 19. And he's going to speak to them about how they are to live as exiles. This Tuesday, half of our country will wonder how they're going to live moving forward if one person wins this election. The other half of the country will have the same concern if the other guy wins. So everyone in our country is wondering how we're going to live uh, after this Tuesday. And I'll tell you briefly, we'll live just like we always did, although there is impact and things that certainly will have an impact on our life one way or the other. The church is not a political body. Man's politics are far less important than God's word and what he has told us. But I couldn't help but think as I read this passage and studied it this week, how that we ought to have really the same question about um, our lives as children of God in this world. How do we live here? How is a child of God to live as an exile? What does that even mean? What does it look like? How do we understand what we are to do and how we are to be while we are here? And Peter answers, beginning in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy And if you call on him as father, who judges deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." You all know by now that when you come across this word, therefore, that you ought to consider why that word is there. And of course, this reaches back to the first 12 verses of what Peter has already said to these people, this scattered group of believers in Christ. He says, therefore, reaching back to what he has already said. And what has he said? We've seen it over these last couple of weeks. He's called them exiles who've been born again, made children of God, born to a living hope, changed and, and made new to and given an inheritance that was and is incorruptible, undefiled and unfading, an inheritance that cannot be taken away from us, a salvation that Peter said 
was one that was caused by God and made different from the world and therefore made exiles. And and then he immediately spoke about the trials and the persecution that comes the way of those who believe in Christ. And he, he doesn't uh, uh, mince words. He doesn't paint a picture that isn't accurate. He says to them, as exiles in this world, you will face various trials and troubles and suffering and persecution. And as I've shared before, I do think that one of the obstacles in our way of appreciating Scripture the way that we otherwise could is the lack greatly of this persecution. We have to this point, and though we do see the scene changing before our eyes today, we have been largely as Christians left alone, certainly by the government to this point, by others, and though we may have friends and family, and as we're younger in school, maybe give you a hard time, uh, that is, that's, that's far from the persecution that these people were enduring. We read to you about the martyrdom of Nathaniel. And so Peter has told them these things, that they have been made exiles in the world. And he says to them about, talks to them about their trials. And then he says, therefore, how then are we to live in this life? They were exiles, though they were elect exiles with a calling upon their lives. If you know the Lord, You have a calling upon your life. It's a calling from God, by God, and for His purpose. Whether or not you see it, whether you understand it fully, and I don't know that any of us ever do, but He's called to you. He's changed you. Peter reminds them, caused you to be born anew and made a new creature. And you have a calling upon your life. This is, again, descriptive of us all who have been saved. There is a calling that God places on our life, and we are to live as exiles while on this side of eternity in certain ways, doing certain things, being a certain kind of person. The essence of what we find in our passage today is how we are to live as an exile So as we begin today, we want to ask some questions to frame our thinking about this passage of Scripture. How is a Christian to live in this world? How does one live as a stranger, a foreigner, an exile in this world? Because that is what we became when God saved us. When we feel at home here and conformed to this world to such an extent that it feels comfortable to us, that ought to be a concern to us as Christians. Because Peter calls us exiles, foreigners, strangers, people who aren't yet in their homeland. And Peter now instructs these people how they are to live that way. Now, if it was easy to live the Christian life, If it was easy to live as exiles in the world, Peter never would have wrote this down. He never would have written to these people to give them insight and understanding in how to live on this side of eternity as an exile. It's not easy to live as a Christian. Christianity is not for the weak-minded, the faint-hearted, 
The one who's not utterly and completely convinced of the truth of the gospel. It is something that requires effort and diligence and thoughtfulness and purposefulness. Peter never would have written this instruction if it was unnecessary. And God never would have preserved it for 2,000 years so that we today could read these words that that man penned under the inspiration of the Spirit of God over uh, 1,900 years ago. It's not easy. It's not intuitive. Though the Spirit of God works in our lives and in our hearts, there must be an intentionality. Peter, though, did write this instruction. He did write it down and send it to these persecuted Christians across these five different areas that he addressed in the first verse in the opening. And God did preserve it. So, if those things are true, then you and I today would do very well to read and understand how we are to live as exiles in the world. And if you don't see yourself as an exile in the world, you need to begin there. We're not home. Never think of this world as home. Never get so comfortable on this side of eternity that you don't long for the eternity that is coming where we will be in heaven with God and with Christ our Savior and with those who have followed Him and had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb and you look forward one day to those to that day when at the throne of Christ you are putting your crown of righteousness at His feet and exalting Him. If your longing, if your heart does not always and ever have a longing for that day and is completely comfortable and happy and more interested in building a life here than in building a life in eternity, that's where you need to begin. And I would encourage you to begin there. Peter did, did in the first 12 verses. You must be born again is essentially his message. And that's what he told the people on the day of Pentecost as he was preaching that sermon. And they said, what should we do? The people that had heard it and were convicted and broken when Peter talked to them of Jesus, that they had crucified the Son of God. And he told them after they asked, what should we do? Repent and believe the gospel. Be baptized. Follow Christ. And now, now it's something of a part two from Peter. As he writes to these elect exiles, perhaps some of whom were there on that very day when Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost. Scattered throughout the land from persecution, scattered from Jerusalem, and left and gone there, but were believers. But Peter's message wasn't finished for them. He has more to tell them, and he tells them about how to live now as an exile in this life. How do you do it? Peter tells us three things in these verses. Three commands. And that's important to think about as we begin. Commands, not suggestions, not good ideas, but commands. He begins, verse 13, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It is not my intention today to give you a Greek language lesson. I would not be qualified to do so, but in, in increasing your Greek language skills is not my aim. But we do, on occasion, need to be very thoughtful and need to note the tense and, the, and what's behind some of the verbs in the Greek. Occasionally we come across portions of Scripture where understanding must be established within a basic understanding of how the verbs work in the Greek. It might be thought here that Peter is commanding us to do three things in this verse. It seems maybe on the surface that Peter is commanding or through the Holy Spirit to prepare our minds for action and commanding us to be sober-minded and commanding us to set our hope fully on the grace of Christ. However, while we are to do all three of these things, only one of them is a command. In the imperative Greek voice, or in the imperative Greek mood, which is the, imper- which is the, vo- the mood of command, it's when, a, when, God, when Jesus tells us to do something specific. He tells us in the imperative. Two of these other actions are participles, and they describe how we are to do what we've been commanded to do. We want to look at that closely today, but we first of all must note that we are to do, commanded to do one of one thing, and we're told how to do that one thing with these two other things. In this verse, Peter commands his readers to set their hope fully on the grace that will be given to them when Jesus returns. That's the command. That's the Greek verb that's in the imperative voice. This is the command. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that that is the command. Yes, we're going to talk about a need to think about preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. But the command that cuts through it all is to set your hope in Christ. Doesn't it make all kinds of sense that that's exactly what Peter would have told them because of the persecution that they were facing and the lives that they were being forced uh, to live under the hand of that harsh and cruel persecution? And isn't it just, doesn't it just make sense that God would have inspired Peter to write to them and say, set your hope in Christ. That's the command. That's what he wants his readers to hear. The suffering, the persecution, and as they're under constant threat of continuing persecution, it would be easy. It would be easy to lose sight of that hope in Christ, wouldn't it? As the persecutioner comes along the road and knocks on your house door and says, if you don't repent and and recant, or should say, if you don't deny Christ, we're going to separate your family. We're going to take your life. We're going to take your livelihood. We've never experienced anything remotely close to that. That doesn't make us lesser Christians. It just makes us thoughtful, hopefully, about what is really at stake and why we really are exiles here and why in the midst of all of that, Peter commands, the command here is to set your hope on Christ. It's what Satan would long to do to any of us, to remove us from setting our hope in Christ. If he can take our eyes off of our hope in Christ, in the midst of our exile, 
in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our challenges that we face in life, these various trials that he's already talked about, if in those trials Satan can place your hope somewhere else, cause you to look for hope someplace else, he will soon gain an upper hand in your life. The minute that your hope is set somewhere other than on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ descends again to gather us with himself and to ever be with him, as he spoke about in John, the day that our hope is set someplace else other than that is the day that Satan gains an upper hand in our Christian lives. It's not the day that you fail to go to church, though that is not helpful. It's not the day that you... Uh, um, fail to do any of the normal things of the Christian life. It's where is your hope? So first of all, how do we live as exiles? We live as a people who set our hope in Christ. And specifically, the grace that will appear for us in that moment. We're told in Scripture that when we're saved, we receive the earnest of our salvation, just the initial payment. Just think for a minute on that day when Jesus returns and you hear the trumpet call that Revelation speaks about and you see Christ descending in the clouds. He'll never set foot here again. He's going to descend just far enough to gather us to be with him. And you remember that day and you hear him say, come enter in, you blessed of my father. What a glorious, unimaginable, unspeakable thing that day will be. And that is where our hope must always be established. And remember, this is a command. It is important. I know some may think that it's it's trifling with nuance to look at this. But the Greek language was an expressive language, and I find it no coincidence that that's the language that God chose to have the New Testament written in. This is the voice of a command. He's not giving you a suggestion. He's not giving you a good idea. This is a command. It's not just Peter merely giving his readers an option that they might make that might make their lives more bearable in the face of their exile. He was not saying, try this. He was saying, do this. He was not saying, this works for me. Maybe it will work for you. He was saying, if you want to remain true to Christ in this life as an exile, you must do this. You must set your hope in Christ. Where is your hope today? In what? In whom? Have you placed your trust? If you've lived long enough, surely you have discovered that setting your hope in anything in this world ends in bitter disappointment. That's what life really teaches you as you grow older that there is nothing in this world in which you can place your hope and confidence that you can be sure will stand and remain firm through all the trials of life. And so Peter says, do this. Set your hope in Christ. If you've never set your hope in Him, I call upon you today to do so. 
Go to him and bow to him and confess to him, cling to him and set your hope in him and nothing else. If you have already done this and you're saved and you're a child of God and Christ is your hope, are you continually setting your hope in him? And remember, Peter is writing to believers. He's writing to believers and telling believers to set your hope in Christ. It doesn't matter merely that one day in the past you did. It does, of course, matter. I misspoke there, but it matters every day to set your hope in Christ. If you've already set it one time in your life, are you setting it daily? Are you continually setting your hope in the grace that you will receive when Jesus returns? Or have you begun to set your hope in something else? What is your hope and where is it? Peter says, if you are to live as an exile in this world, as a child of God, in the face of persecution and trial, you must do this. You must set your hope in Christ. Our salvation is kept by God. We know that this is true. Peter's already told us that, right? In verses 4 and 5, speaking of that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation is already ready. And when the last time comes, if you have your hope in Christ, it's already going to be ready at that moment. But even as Peter writes this, even as he wrote to people who already possess this hope in Christ, he commands them to continue doing so. A lot of people are going through some difficult times right now. I understand, I know. There's a lot of uncertainty that surrounds our lives, our jobs, our health, our homes, our children, our family, our church. A lot of uncertainty. So, with all of that uncertainty and all that is so far out of your control and mine and anyone else's, where's your hope? What's it set in? What is it established in? Peter says, set your hope in the grace that will be ready to be revealed, that grace that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. And he says to do this, with minds prepared for action. How are we to set our hope? With minds prepared for action. This is the first participle. The first way, the first, the first verbal adjective, the first descriptor, the first manner in which we are to set our hope in the grace of Christ. With minds prepared for action. The King James reads this way, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The ASV reads, girding up the loins of your mind. The picture that would have immediately come to first century Christians was a man taking the length of his robes and tying them so that his legs would be free to work, and to, get, uh, to move more rapidly and more quickly and engage in strenuous work. The sense is clear as we set our hope in Christ while living in exile in this world, we are to do so with minds prepared for action. Minds prepared for action. Girding up the loins of our mind. What does this mean? The sense of this 
verb is to prepare oneself for learning and thinking. To get one's mind ready for action, to be ready to learn and to think, to be alert. Another definition of this concept or of this idea that's being presented, it is to prepare to think hard. One of the greatest casualties of our technologically advanced age is the mind that's prepared to think hard. We just, it's just not required of us as much as perhaps it used to be to, to think hard. In fact, I think just even saying that makes us wonder, what do you mean to think hard? Diligently, purposefully, quietly, undistractedly. One of the greatest casualties to the Christian message is the same. The unwillingness or the inability or the lack of familiarity with just thinking about God, His Word, our lives, the world, lost, saved, Christ, crucifixion, repentance, the doctrines of Scripture. We just, we just don't do it enough. And I don't want to be harsh or insulting to anyone. I don't. But I want to call attention to this reality. That we just don't have to think very hard to get through the day if we don't want to. Food's readily available. Walk into our heated or our cooled homes and vehicles. So much. And none of that is wrong. None of that is sin. But don't let it prevent you from thinking hard. In fact, it ought to enable you to do so more and more. One of the, as we said, this casualty of the technological age, it, it's got us to think that learning and that thinking is about gathering facts. Facts about any subject that anyone can imagine, any subject under the sun, they're just a simple internet search away, aren't they? I mean, our phones, I mean, our watches, certainly our computers. It's just an internet search away. What does this mean? Who is this person? When did they live? When did they die? What's the melting point of this element? What, who invaded whom in this war or that one? It's just, a, it's just seconds away from us. The gathering of these facts. And we have come to think, ironically, that the gathering of facts is equivalent to thinking. And it isn't. The gathering of facts is just that. It's the gathering of the facts, and now the thinking must begin. But we don't think this way. It, it will never cease to amaze me. I, I believe I'm going to go to my grave with this being one of my soapboxes, and so I'll try to avoid stepping completely on it today. But it will never cease to amaze me that the Christian is seen as the one who does not think deeply and carefully, and it's the atheist and the agnostic that is the real careful thinker. It's absurd. It's so upside down. It's so backward. We've got it exactly backward. Now let me ask you this question under the heading of what Paul or Peter is telling us. When was the last time you prepared your mind for action? 
sat down and prepared and thought about God and His world and who He has made you and who He is calling you to be. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you purposely and intentionally set out to discover the truth of what God has said in His Word and in your life? I would encourage you, of course, as I often do, to read this Word. Because the Word tells us to do it as well. Just repeating a command of God when we encourage one another with that. Make sure you are You are filling your mind with the Word of God. But don't just end there with the reading of it. How many times in your own discipline, which is a good discipline of reading the Scripture, and you've read it and then you go, what did did I just read? What did he say? By 2 p.m. in the afternoon, you go, what was my devotional about? What, What was the Scripture I read? Don't let that be the habit. Think about it. David didn't just say to read it. He said to meditate on it day and night, to contemplate it, to consider it, to think what God has told you about it. Peter says here, prepare your minds for action. And he's not just talking to a crowd of preachers. He's talking to the scattered exiles, all of them. I would encourage you again to set a time Set aside time in your life to think. came across this quote. I believe it was Lenski. Speaking of these, of this kind of Christian, this kind of believer that's observing this command. He says, instead of letting their thoughts, purposes, decisions hang loose while they move leisurely along in life as impulse and occasion may move them. The readers are to gird up their minds like people who are energetically set on going somewhere. To gird up the loins means decision, action, not idling, not drifting after this and that momentary attraction. I pray that as you go about your day, your mind is turning things over about something in God's word or some experience he has given you in your life and you're thinking about it. Those are the times I enjoy. I I leverage, I use as many tools as God has allowed me to get my hands on and study. But what really is preferable to all of that is to just sit in prayer and to think about things God might show show me. I'm usually, I I hesitate to say this because I don't want you to think that I'm giving myself as a pattern because I certainly wouldn't. But there's usually, in my life, I try to something in the morning that I read, just thinking about it. How does it apply to this conversation now that I'm having at work, driving into work? And I am far from what I ought to be, but my mind's usually engaged in something about what God is trying to tell me. And what does your mind go to in all those in-between moments in your life? You know, the in-between moments, the task switching moving from one thing to another. Your mind should never be empty. should be thoughtful. What does your mind go to in those times when you're driving to work or to school, as you're mowing the lawn, as you lay down to bed? Does your average day involve much thinking at all? Are you preparing your mind for action? To do what? To set your hope in Christ. 
Remember, that's the command. That's the point. And he says also to do this with sober-mindedness. To be in control of one's thought processes is what this word sober-minded is how it, what it means. And to thus not be in danger of irrational thinking. To be sober-minded. To be well-composed in mind. A sober mind is in touch with reality. It's engaged with what is real and submits its thoughts and its conclusions to that reality as defined by God and His Word. So we set our hope in Christ and the grace that we will receive when He returns again with a mind that's ready and prepared and thoughtful and sober and rooted firmly in truth and reality. And he finally sets this word I want to mention when he says to set it fully. Set it fully, your hope, in these things. The sense here is a once and for all setting of our hope in Christ and the grace that we will receive from him when he returns. No more waffling. No more halting between two opinions. No more hedging. No more wondering or wandering. No more double-mindedness. No more attempts to have our way and God's way. No more attempts to have one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. No more indecision. No more of that. But a settled, decided, decisive moment where we say to God, I am setting my hope today in you. I have nowhere else to turn, God. I know this. I've thought about it. I've looked out into the world. I know it cannot give me what I need. I know no one else can give me what I need. And God, I know you can. And so my hope is set in you. And it is set in you with a mind that is sober, fully engaged, and fully understanding of what's real and what's not. And it is set purposely and a mind that's been prepared to do so and to set it fully Once and for all, decided, firm, resolute commitment to trust Christ with all because of the eternal hope we have in Him. That's one. We'll move quickly to these other two. Second, verses 14 through 16, be holy. That's the imperative in these verses. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's the command, is to be holy. How do we live as exiles in this world? As holy, as separate, as distinct, as identifiable. Not worldly, but godly. And how do we live as holy? As obedient children. That's the the participle, that's the descriptor to this imperative of to be holy, to obey as a child. And how does a child obey when they're obeying correctly? Think about this as children. They trust, even when they don't understand. Following God and obeying Him as a child is to trust Him even when we don't understand. Childlike obedience is submissive even when their desire is different than that of their parents and the command that they've been given. Obedience as a child is cheerful, even when things aren't going the way that they wanted or expected. Childlike obedience is loving because of their desire to please, reverence, and respect their parents. 
as obedient children, we are called to this holiness. Holiness will never come if God has to drag you there against your will. Holiness will never come if you are not trusting His call on your life and instead substituting your wisdom for His. So how do we be holy? First, we obey like a child. Secondly, we're told, do not conform to the former ignorance that you once walked in. Don't act like you did before you knew God. That's what Peter is saying. Grow up, you might say. Not conforming to our former ignorance. And this requires discipline of heart and mind. You know, when a child does something wrong before they are taught what is right, the discipline that's called for here is formative discipline. It's not corrective. The child didn't know. To, to, ena- to, uh, to enact uh, corrective discipline at that point would be, d- be un- unfair and, and, and unsuccessful in teaching a child. When they don't know what's right or wrong and they do something wrong, it's time for formative discipline to explain and to tell them what is right and what is wrong and why what they did was wrong because they're children. It's amazing to me how much our society, though, is allowing children to tell us what is right and wrong and they don't even know yet. That's why they need to be taught. But when a child does something wrong, when we do something wrong, God is uh, long-suffering to us and He teaches and He formatively teaches us and He does does that through His Word. He does that through His people. He does that through preaching. He does that through experiences in our lives in all kinds of ways. The idea, though, here is that once the child has been taught and does know what is right, They are to obey as children and do what is right. Now, applying this to Peter's readers, he's telling them that they now that they know what is right, having prepared their minds for action and having been sober minded and having examined what God has told them in the Old Testament for them at the time and through his apostles in their day. So now all that remains is to resist being conformed to their former ignorance and to live wisely as an exile. You know the pesky thing about learning what's right? You can't unlearn it. Once you know, you can't unknow. That's that's the thing about conviction as well, by the way. Once God convicts you, you can never step backwards, backwards across that line again. You've been held accountable by God. He doesn't forget. And really neither can you. And in the same way, when we know what is right in our life and we know it, the pesky thing about that is we can't really ever unknow it. Now, when a child does something wrong after being taught what is right, then of course corrective discipline is necessary. He tells us here as well to, to realize that the standard is God, not man, As he who's called you is holy, you also be holy. The standard's not other people. That's not the standard that we base our lives on as exiles in this world. The standard's not other people. The standard is not our previous behavior. The standard is God. As he is holy, Peter says, so be you holy. 
Carrying over the analogy of an obedient child, the child should want to grow up to be like their parents. The child of God should desire to grow up and desire to be as like the one whose image they bear as they can be on this side of eternity while still wrestling with a flesh that's full of sin. That should be the desire. I'll give you a tip, any of you that might be young enough to still have this kind of conversation with your parents. When you say everyone else is doing it, you've just weakened your case dramatically. You've not helped it. You've weakened it. And we, as children of God, when we look out into the world and we say, well, everybody, everybody behaves this way. We're weakening our own case because the standard is not everybody else. The standard is God, a holy, righteous, heavenly Father. It's not me or you. It's not this person or that person. It's not how I used to act. That's not the standard any longer. The standard is God. 2 Corinthians 10.12 Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They're without understanding. And now third, how do we live as exiles in the world? We live with a reverence for God. We've already heard about that this morning in testimony. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This word fear has in it a greater sense of reverence and awe. One commentator says it this way, it's a reverence fear. It's evidenced by a tender conscience, a watchfulness against temptation and avoiding things that would displease God. And he says to them, Peter does, as you call upon him as father, knowing that he is the one who's given you your life. He has given you everything you have. He has promised to keep you, to guard you, and to protect you. And not only here, but in eternity. Surely this one merits our reverence and fear. Our loving reverence. He has set creation in order. Surely he warrants our respect and our reverential fear. We don't look at God this way too much of the time, and certainly our nation doesn't. There was a time, I believe, when reverence for God was far greater even among unbelievers. And the rampant sin of our day and rejection and rebellion against God, we are an irreverent people. One of the things that's, one of the ugliest things that you see, and maybe it's because I spent a, a little bit, a couple of years as a head of a school and I've spent 20 some years as a parent. One of the most ugly things is to see a child disrespect their parents. It's ugly. And it's ugly not because the parent merits it. It's ugly because authority and this structure goes all the way back to God. And to dismiss and to disobey and to be irreverent of those who God has set over us in our lives, it is irreverent of Him and it's ugly. No other way to describe it. 
As we reverence him, as we call upon him as father, we must always and ever be mindful of his impartiality. Peter or Paul says it this way in Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. God is not a father who shows partiality among his children. Not at all. He doesn't prefer one to the other. He doesn't think a lot of this one and not a whole lot of that one. He doesn't mark this one a 9 on a scale of 1 to 10 and this one a 6 on a scale of 1 to 10. He notes all of them are zeros on a scale of 1 to 10. And it's only by His grace and mercy that any of them stand anyway. And He loves them equally and impartially and He does not favor one over the other. Have you ever been guilty though of thinking that He does? He doesn't. Mindful of his impartiality and not, sometimes we'll flip the script and we'll think, well, God loves me more than that one. And so he'll let me get away with this or that. He'll look past my sin in this arena of life. He wouldn't look past it in that one because he prefers me to that one. Think how much more I know about God. How many more church services I've been to. How many more sermons I've heard. How many more sermons I've given. God prefers me. We begin to think. And Peter reminds them, no, he doesn't. As you pray to him, Peter says, and you call upon him as your father, remember, he does not prefer you over anyone else or the other way around. This should instill in us a reverence for God. Mindful as well, finally, of the ransom that has been paid for us. Surely reverence and fear are due to God who has sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life, who died in our place and purchased our ransom. This God is owed our reverence. You know, people sometimes get this child-parent relationship mixed up. The parent is seen to live for the sake of the child. And don't get me wrong. Parent loves their children more than their children will know for many, many years. Can't really express it. Do anything for them. Step in front of a running train if it would save their life. They would do anything for them. They love them that deeply. But if this is not seen correctly and not kept in its right perspective, it can become a stumbling block to the child. The child can begin to think that everything is about them when it isn't. A reverence for God is often not present in our lives because we've swallowed the lie that life is about us rather than the one who gave us life. I was talking to Sarah yesterday, I believe, and I've noted it. It's not anything new. Many of you, no doubt, have already observed it and thought about it. I just, on Friday nights, for many, many, many years... Uh, they're coming to a close probably very soon. A couple of years, no doubt. We have Friday night pizza night. It's Dad's night to cook. Frozen pizzas go in the oven. And we'll usually watch some show. Um, we're in Last Man Standing now. It's been The Amazing Race. It's been that. It's been some show we watch together. And now it's all via streaming services, right? Hulu and all of these others. And I note the commercials on Hulu. How many of them? You ever noticed how many of them are just telling you that same subtle lie? Do what you want to do. You deserve to do what you want to do. You should think about yourself before you think about anyone else. 
You should just follow what you want to do. Look, you don't need to pay millions of dollars for a commercial like that. We already do that. It's innate. You don't have to teach me to do that. I'm going to do that on my own. What we have to teach and present is the gospel message, which is it's about God and not me. Not that we are uninvolved. Don't misunderstand and slingshot over to this extreme where we think that it's not at all about us because Christ came and died on the cross so that we might be made uh, perfectly righteous again in the blood that He shed on Calvary's cross. But the lie that Satan twists into our mind and into our thinking is that we begin to think and that the problem that we have today, by the way, it isn't that people aren't thinking about themselves enough. The problem is people aren't thinking about God enough. That's the problem. We got it backwards once again. I conclude today with these thoughts. Here we are looking at what Peter has been telling a group of exiles and telling them how they are to live as exiles in this life. And then how are we, you and I, today to do the same? First, set our hope always in Christ and in the grace that will appear when he returns. That's where your hope needs to be set. Nowhere else. Set it fully there. Unreservedly committed. Not looking back. Not double-minded. Not Lot's wife to take one last final look back at the world. But straight ahead, always and ever, following God, wherever he leads. Set your hope in Christ. That's where it is. Secondly, strive to live holy as God is holy. Of course, we'll never be that on this side of eternity, but we are to strive to be holy people, separate, distinct, identifiable in the world. And then finally, live with a reverence and fear of God in your life. If you think about it, if you think about it, much of the trouble we cause ourselves is because we're not doing one of these three things. Think about it. Much of the trouble that we cause ourselves is because we're not doing one of these three things. Instead of setting our hope in Christ, we're setting our hope in the world. Instead of striving to conform to the holiness of a righteous God, we strive to conform to this world. Instead of living with a reverence and fear for God, we live with a reverence and fear for, for men. I can't think of a more sure firm formula of a road to ruin than that. To set my hope in the world, to conform to the world, and to reverence the world. And Peter knew it, and so writing to these exiles, he gave them these three commands. And then in many different ways and angles, and Peter's writing is like this. He puts reasons in front of the command. Instead of giving the command and then the reasons, he'll give the reasons and then the command. And that's what he's done here. So as we do this, and as we live as exiles on this side of eternity, I pray we keep these things in mind. I pray something has been said that has helped to you in your life and in your walk with God. If you don't know him, I sincerely pray, I beg you, if I could do anything to save you, I would. I ask you to seek him until you find him, until you know him. And we pray that the Lord would make it so. Follow the Spirit as we continue on. Let's have a song. Uh, if we could, um, somebody lead.